Good morning, this is Randy Landry, and this is going to be my 137th podcast on Common Sense Ramblings in America. Today I'm going to, I've done this before, so this is not a precedent. Uh, I get this um, brochure, it's a publication of Hillsdale College um, Imprimis, and um, I read from a previous um, pamphlet about um, current events. Uh, today I'm going to read an article written by Jeffrey A. Tucker, The Economic Disaster of the Pandemic Response. Um, because this is um, being read from Imprimis, it's not one of the uh, more common articles that I have posted on my blog, um, so it'll only be in this format. Um, exciting, huh? So um, if you don't listen to this, uh, you'll either have to read the Imprimis uh, pamphlet um, this is um, was presented to me in October, or pro- published, I sorry, on October 2022. It's volume 51, number 10. And according to this brochure, there's over 60.2 million readers of this particular um, um, publication. Again, a publication of Hillsdale College, and this is written by Jeffrey A. Tucker, who is a founder and president of Brownstone Institute and a daily columnist on economics from the Epoch Times. So, without further ado, let me read this article. Um, It is, the following is adapted from a talk delivered at Hillsdale College on October 20, October 20th, 2022, sponsored by the student group Praxis. On April 15, 2020, a full month after President Trump's fateful news conference that green-lighted lockdowns to be enacted by the states for 15 days to flatten the curve, quote-unquote, the president had a revealing White House core conversation with Anthony Fauci. Hiss, hiss. That's my addition there. The head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. I am not going to preside over the funeral of the greatest country in the world, Trump wisely said as reported in Jared Kushner's book, Breaking History. The promised Easter reopening of the economy had not happened, and Trump was angry. He also suspected that he had been misled and was no longer speaking to coronavirus coordinator Deborah Burks. I understand, Fauci responded meekly. I just do medical advice. I don't think about things like the economy and the secondary impacts. I'm just an infectious disease doctor. Your job as president is to take everything else into consideration. That conversation reflected the tone of the debate then and later over the lockdowns and vaccine mandates. The economy viewed as mechanistic, money-centered, mostly about the stock market and detached from anything truly important, was pitted against public health and the preservation of life. The assumption seemed to be that you had to choose one or the other, that you could not have both. It also seemed to be widely believed in 2020 that the best approach to pandemics was to institute massive human coercion, a belief based on the novel theory that if you make humans behave like non-player characters in a computer models, you can keep them from infecting one another until a vaccine arrives to wipe out the pathogen. The lockdown approach in 2020 stood in stark contrast to a century of public health experience in dealing with pandemics. 
During the Great Influenza Crisis of 1918, only a few cities tried coercion and quarantine, mostly San Francisco, also the home at the time of the first anti-mask league, whereas most locations took a person-by-person therapeutic approach. Given the failure of quarantines in 1918, they were not employed again during the disease scares, some real, some exaggerated, of 1929. 1947-58-1967-68-2003-2005-2009-and-all-those-years-even-the-national-media-acted-responsibly-and-urging-calm-but-not-in-2020-when-policymakers-whether-due-to-intellectual-error-put-calculations- or some combination of the two, launched an experiment without precedent. The sick and well-like were quarantined through the use of stay-at-home orders, domestic capacity limits, and business, school, and church shutdowns. This occurred not only in the U.S., but worldwide, with the notable exception of perhaps five nations and the state of South Dakota. Needless to say, the consequences were profound. Coercion can be used to turn off an economy, but given the resulting trauma, turning the economy back on is not so easy. That is why, 30 months later, we are experiencing the longest period of declining real income since the end of World War II. A health crisis, an education crisis, Sorry, a health crisis, an education crisis, and exploding national debt, 40-year high inflation, continued and seemingly random shortages, dysfunction in labor markets, a breakdown of international trade, a dramatic collapse in consumer confidence, and a dangerous level of political division. Meanwhile, what happened to COVID? It came anyway. Just as the best epidemiologists predicted it would, had a highly stratified impact, consisting with the information we had from the very early days, the at-risk population was largely the elderly and infirm. To be sure, almost everyone eventually came down with COVID with varying degrees of severity. Some people shook it off in a couple of days, others suffered for weeks, and many died. Although even now, there is grave uncertainty about the true number of COVID deaths due both to faulty PCR testing and to financial incentives given to hospitals to attribute non-COVID deaths to COVID. Trade-offs, even if the lockdowns had saved lives over the long term, and the literature on this overwhelmingly suggests they did not. It would be proper to ask the question at what cost? What are the trade-offs? Because economic considerations were shelved for the emergency, policymakers failed to consider trade-offs. Thus did the White House, on March 16, 2020, send out the most dreaded imaginable directive from an economic point of view. Bars, restaurants, food courts, gyms, and other indoor and outdoor venues where groups of people congregate should be closed. And the results were legion. For one thing, 
The lockdowns kicked off an epic bout of government spending. COVID response spending amounted to at least $6 trillion above normal operations, running the national debt up to 121% of GDP. For comparison, our national debut debt in 1981 amounted to 35% of the GDP, and Ronald Reagan correctly declared that a crisis. The Federal Reserve purchased this new debt with newly created money nearly dollar for dollar. From February to May 2020, the total money supply, what economists call M2, increased by an average of $814.3 billion per month. The peak came early the following year, in February 2022 and 2021. The annual rate of increase of M2 reached a staggering 27.5%. At the same time, as one would expect, in a crisis of this sort, spending plummeted. Since a severe decrease in spending puts deflationary pressure on prices regardless of what happens with the money supply, the bad effects of printing all this money were pushed off into the future. That future is now. The explosion in M2 has resulted in the highest inflation in 40 years, and this inflation is accelerating, at least according to October 12, 2022. Producer Price Index, which is more valuable than it has been in months, or volatile, sorry, than it has been in months, and is running ahead of the Consumer Price Index. A reveal from earlier in the lockdown period. This new pressure on producers has heavily impacted the business environment and created recessionary conditions. Moreover, this has not just been a U.S. problem. Most nations in the world followed the same lockdown strategy while attempting to substitute government spending and printing money for real economic activity. The Federal Reserve is being called on daily to step up its lending to foreign central banks through the discount window for emergency loans. It is now at the highest level since spring 2020. The Fed lent $6.5 billion to two foreign central banks in just one week. This October, the numbers are scary and foreshadow a possible international financial crisis. The Great Head Fake Back in the spring and summer of 2020, we seem to be experiencing a miracle. State governments around the country had crushed social activity and free enterprise, and yet real income was soaring. Between February 2020 and March 2021, a time of low inflation, real personal income was up by $4.2 trillion. It felt like magic but it was actually the result of government stimulus checks. Initially, people used their newfound riches to pay off credit card debt and boast savings. In the month after first stimulus, the personal savings rate went from 9.6 to 33%. Also, since people were being coerced into living an all-digital existence, there was lots of spare time and a need for new equipment. So companies like Netflix and Amazon benefited enormously. After the summer of 2020, 
people started to get the hang of having free money dropped into their bank accounts. So by November, the savings rate had dropped back down to 13.3%. When the Biden administration unleashed another round of stimulus in 2021, the savings rate at first nearly doubled. But fast forward to present, and people are saving only 3.5%, half the historical norm dating back to 1960. And credit card debt is soaring, even though interest rates are 17% and higher. In other words, all the curves inverted once inflation came along to eat out the value of the stimulus. In reality, all that free money turned out to be very expensive. The dollar of January 2020 is now worth only 87 cents, which is to say that the stimulus spending covered by the Federal Reserve printing money stole 13 cents of every American dollar in the course of only 2.5 years. This was one of the biggest head fakes in the history of modern economics. The pandemic planners created paper prosperity to cover up the grim reality they had brought about. But paper prosperity is false property prosperity. It could not and did not last. Between January 2021 and September of 2022, prices increased 13.5% across the board, costing the average American family $728 in September alone. Even if inflation were to stop today, the inflation already in the bag will cost the average American family $8,739 over the next 12 months. Lingering carnage. While big tech moguls and urban information workers thrived during the pandemic lockdown, Main Street suffered the look of most of America in those days was post-apocalyptic, with vast numbers of people huddled at home, either alone or with immediate families, fully convinced that a universally deadly virus was lurking outdoors. Meanwhile, the CDC was recommending that essential businesses install countless plexiglass barriers and place social distancing stickers everywhere people would walk. This sounds ridiculous now, but for many it wasn't then. I recall being yelled at for walking only a few feet into a grocery aisle that had been designated by stickers to be one way in the other direction. There were reports of people using drones to identify and report neighbors who were holding prohibited parties, weddings, or funerals. Parents masked up their kids even though kids were at near zero risk and all schools were closed. A friend of mine arrived home from a visit out of town and his mother demanded that he leave his COVID-infested bags on the porch for three days. Those were the days when people believed the virus was outdoors and we should stay in. Oddly, this changed over time to where people believed that the virus was indoors and we should go out. It eventually became clear that we had moved from government-mandated mania to a popular delusion for the ages. The resulting damage to small business has yet to be thoroughly documented. At least 100,000 restaurants and stores closed in Manhattan alone. Commercial real estate 
prices crashed and big business moved into scoop up bargains hotel bars restaurants malls theaters and anyone without home delivery suffered terribly the arts were devastated during the deadly hong kong flu of 68 and 69 we had woodstock this time around we had to settle for youtube it may seem odd but the healthcare industry suffered as well the cdc strongly urged the closing of hospitals to anyone not facing a non-elective surgery or suffering from covid this turned out to exclude nearly everyone who would routinely show for diagnostics or other normal treatments as a result health care sector employment fell 1.6 million in early 2020 even strangers the fact that total health care spending fell off a cliff from march to may of 2020 health care spending collapsed by 500 billion or 16.5%. This created a normal financial crisis for hospitals in general. This is not to mention dentistry. I know from personal experience that in Massachusetts, you couldn't get a much needed root canal. Why? Because a root canal required preliminary cleaning and examination, and those were prohibited as non-essential. I looked into traveling to Texas for a root canal, but the dentist there required by law the forced out-of-state patients to quarantine in the state for two weeks. This virtual abolition of dentistry for a time was in keeping with the injunction of a headline in the New York Times in February 28, 2020, to take on the coronavirus, go medieval on it. What better way to describe the institution of a feudal system of dividing work and workers across the nation in terms of essential and non-essential? The New York Times wasn't affected by the lockdowns, of course, because media centers were deemed essential. Just for two years, it was able to keep its presses running and instruct its Manhattan readers to stay home and have their groceries delivered. Delivered by whom? The New York Times neither said nor cared. It was apparently unimportant if the working class were exposed to COVID in service to the elites. And then afterwards, when the working classes had natural immunity that was superior to the immunity offered by the so-called COVID vaccines, they were subjected to vaccine mandates. Millions across the nation eventually quit or fired due to those vaccine mandates. Highly qualified members of the U.S. military are still being discharged for non-compliance. We are told that unemployment today is very low. And that many new jobs are being filled. But most of those are existing workers getting second and third jobs because families are struggling to pay the bills. Moonlighting and side gigging are now a way of life. The full truth about labor markets requires that we look at the labor participation and work population rates, both of which are low. Millions have gone missing. Most are working women who still cannot find child care because that industry has yet to recover from the lockdowns. Labor participation among women is back to 1988 levels. They are also large numbers of 20-somethings who moved home and went on unemployment benefits. Many more 
have simply lost the will to achieve and build a future. The supply chain breakages we are seeing today are also a lingering result of the stoppage of economic activity in early 2020. By the time the lockdown regime was relaxed and the manufacturers started recording, reordering parts, they found that many factories overseas had already retooled for other kinds of demands. This particularly affected the semiconductor industry for automotive manufacturing. Overseas chipmakers had turned their attention to personal computers, cell phones, and other devices. This was the beginning of the car shortage that sent prices through the roof. It also created a political demand for U.S.-based chip production, which has in turn resulted in another round of export and import controls. These sorts of problems have affected every industry without exception. Why, for example, do we have a paper shortage? Because so many of the paper factories shifted to plywood and cardboard after prices skyrocketed in response to the housing and mail delivery demand created by the lockdowns and stimulus checks. In conclusion, we could write books listing all the economic calamities directly caused by the disastrous pandemic response. We'll be suffering the results for years. Yet even today, too few people grasp the relationship between our current economic hardships, extending even to growing international tensions and the breakdown of trade and travel and the brutality of the pandemic response. Anthony Fauci said at the outset, I don't think about things like economy and the secondary impacts. Melinda Gates admitted in December 4, 2020 interview with the New York Times, what did surprise us is we hadn't really thought through the economic impacts. There is no wall of separation between economics and public health. A healthy economy is indispensable for healthy people. Shutting down economic life was a singularly bad idea for taking on a pandemic. Economics is about people making choices and institutions enabling them to thrive. Public health is about the same thing. Driving a wedge between the two, as happened in 2020, ranks among the most catastrophic public policy decisions of our times. Health and economics both require the non-negotiable called freedom. May we never again experiment with the near abolition of freedom and the cause of mitigating disease. Well, I hope you enjoyed my reading of this post. I think this was quite a seminal work. Um, I'm even considering um, adding this to my um, COVID response um, postings that I've been doing. Um, I think this is um, definitely something that needs to be spread a little bit more. Um, well, this concludes my podcast. For this week. Um, next week I am considering um, dis- discussing what happened in our midterm election, um, how the predictions were skewed one way and actually happened the other way. Um, so until then, have a great day and as always, um, be safe and don't give up. Take care.